Eric Smith is an interdisciplinary scientist based at the Earth Life Science Institute at Tokyo Institute of Technology. A scholar with wide-ranging intellectual interests, Smith is also a research fellow at the Santa Fe Institute. He came to CTI last month for a seminar on astrobiology with our research fellows. After the seminar, we recorded a conversation for the podcast. I think in the conversations between any science and the wider circle of humanities, you have to ask why people are in the conversation. Do both parties in the conversation come to it recognizing some inadequacy and hoping to grow and hoping that the other will help them grow? And what's the evidence of that? Are they willing to change what they do? Are they willing to give anything up? Are they willing to try something new that will only come to them after they've grown into what they couldn't do before the interaction? I would like to see the two communities challenge each other and, and ask to get something non-zero back, right? Eric Smith received the Bachelor of Science degree in Physics and Mathematics from the California Institute of Technology in 1987 and a PhD in Physics from the University of Texas at Austin in 1993, with a dissertation on problems in string theory and high temperature superconductivity. Joining Smith in the conversation on the podcast is Andrew Davison, a fellow in the current inquiry on astrobiology. Davison is the Starbridge Lecturer in Theology and Natural Sciences at the University of Cambridge and a Fellow of Corpus Christi College. He holds undergraduate degrees and doctorates in both natural science and theology. His interests lie at the intersection of theology, philosophy, and science, including work on astrobiology, finitude, participation, emergence, and hylomorphism. Thanks for joining the conversation. here today with, with two scholars involved in our, our program, Eric Smith, a visiting scientist, and Andrew Davison, one of our fellows who's both a, has both a PhD in theology and in biochemistry, so very much also involved in the scientific conversation. Eric, we've got uh, Thanksgiving coming up in a few weeks, and one way I would put this is, do you ever sit around the Thanksgiving table and some distant cousin or something asks what you do and what your field is, and, and, and when that happens, or if that ever happens, how do you answer Depends on which cousin it is. Uh, now, in a professional context, it would be easier to say if you apply for a job and people ask, what are you qualified to teach? Which things can you answer? Oh, so what do you say then? Yeah. I have enough of a physics education that I could probably call myself professional in some aspects of statistical physics, although that could be overselling a bit. So much of the last 25 years of my history has been shaped by interdisciplinary work in a wide variety of domains that that really is the dominant signature of the kind of work I do right now. So much of the last 20 years studying biochemistry, but that's not enough to be a competent biochemist, much of the same time studying game theory and institutional economics, 
but that's not enough to be an economist. Most of the period studying historical linguistics, but that's not enough to be a linguist. So you see the pattern one can do induction on that. So uh, Andrew, just yesterday, we uh, Eric gave us a presentation of his work, uh, and we had some time for conversation. And he's been here for the last twenty four hours or so with some more time to, to talk with you and the other fellows. But it, it, what were some of the questions that you were left with near the end yesterday that you didn't have a chance to talk about yet? With it? Well, Eric made some observations about what it means for things to be alive, which is a pretty profound question, which I think will stay with me for a long time, and I'll be thinking about what they mean and how they might change the way in which we look at things, um, particularly in terms of the way in which things are related or whether we put the emphasis on things as individuals. Um, you did what scientists uh, quite often do, which is to trace the history of life back towards its origins, uh, which we can do using information about genes. Uh, that's quite often been done uh, with respect to the genes for signalling molecules, but you put the emphasis on metabolism, the, the factory or assembly line uh, of the cell, which makes new chemicals and uh, breaks them down, uh, which is where my own uh, biochemical work was uh, in the lab. And uh, you talked about particularly the citric acid or, citric acid or Krebs cycle, and I was working in the building where that had been discovered by Krebs. Unfortunately, that little laboratory has been knocked down since. And um, you talked about that as the oldest of all fossils, but actually it's incredibly well preserved uh, as, a, as a system and older than many rocks uh, even on the earth, which is like a lovely idea. Uh, and what you pointed out uh, was that um, that that job, uh, that metabolic job, in what seemed to be our oldest ancestors, were was perfor performed within each individual thing. It was a gathered up process uh, within each um, uh, individual thing. Whereas as we trace the path towards uh, the, the present day, we find that that's uh, quite often uh, not complete in any particular living thing now, and that things end up relying on one another, that, um, that it's a bit like a, a factory where all the different pathways were, were originally in the one cell, whereas nowadays this creature can do that and that organism can do that, and they rely on one another to, to fill in the gaps. And I think that uh, it's really quite profound for the way in which we think about what it means to be alive, because that process, which is so integral to what it means to be alive, is nowadays not found united in any or typically not found united in just one thing, but it's to be found in the whole tapestry of things that are living together. And I think, tell me if I'm right, but you were saying that this uh, this category or property of being alive is something that we ought to as much identify in the network of interrelated things as, as putting the emphasis on individuals. And I, that's given me a great deal to think about. Yeah. We live so much in an age of model organisms because it's so hard to do good experimental work that people have to choose a study system and then do everything they can to understand that study system because the return on investment to adding something is much better if a lot is already known about an organism. But then when you study an organism, you have to say which things can we learn from studying an organism and which things do we not learn. And 
our study systems have often been targets of opportunity for us and where they were sort of natural good choices it was often with respect to the management structure of the organism the genome the hereditary process some aspects of development maybe some aspects of physiology and scale but for biochemistry it's not clear that what you learn at the level of a single organism actually tells you a lot about the nature of being alive or the requirements of being alive. So it would be good if in biology we were more acutely aware all the time of which things you can learn from the organism and which things you can't see until you go to its ecological and geochemical context. Mm. And that's not news to anyone who works carefully in one area, but it's not part of the worldview that is reflexively available across biology or that biology communicates within the wider society about how it thinks. So would it be fair to say that some of the species that we know the most about turn out to be quite atypical? So there are bacteria that we can grow by themselves in the laboratory and we've studied them in enormous detail, but if, if I'm right, actually, by far, the majority of bacteria in the world, you, you couldn't culture individually like that. I mean, maybe even 99% of the bacterial species seem to need to grow alongside one another in order to survive. It's an interesting question. I think we can certainly say that anything that is heterotrophic and that depends on its ecosystem for complicated support, it may or may not be atypical, but it certainly is very incomplete. It's a really interesting question whether the organisms we can culture are unusual and that their culturability reflects something unusual about them, or if it's just a kind of a sampling artifact that they're not necessarily more unusual or more unrepresentative than all the things that we can't culture. They just happen to overlap well with what we're good at. Mm. And we haven't been doing this for very long. Probably we'll get better at culturing things in the future than we have been in the past. But it's a good question. It's an, it's an intriguing science question about whether there are natural types and that we can recognize those types by culturability. Because you can certainly argue that for certain diseases, there are diseases where studying them out of their context gets us further toward good remedies. And then others where taking them out of their context so changes the question that what we do well in the jar winds up not working well in the patient at all. Could be the same in the microbial world. If you do a comparative analysis of every known living thing, you see that there are a lot of features that there are a lot of features which can't be accounted for simply as reflections of the condition of living, because there are too many arbitrary things about the way they're realized to simply be imprints of the requirement to live in one way or another. The fact that those arbitrary things all have signatures of relatedness only, only the fact that those arbitrary things all have signatures of commonality in their arbitrariness is something that only makes sense if the commonality is a reflection of descent from some earlier sets of common ancestors. And since we don't see anything that seems to be required as other than modified descent 
from individual early forms with innovations along the way. And since anything that we can reconstruct in detail coalesces to some originating point, what people say is that the variation in extant life strongly justifies an explanation in terms of a common ancestor pool and it provides no evidence that requires anything other than a common ancestor pool so that's what we're left with as the best model and it's not to say that there was a time when this was the only sure. thing upon the earth it's just that just how far back we can go yeah for, well in current knowledge no it's the thing about descent is that you branch into the future from the past mm -hmm. and everything leave, has some descendants that die out because everything is overproduced and everything falls apart with some probability. So just statistically, if you wait long enough in a finite world, there will be something that was the originator of everything that survived. It will not be the only peer that was alive at its time, but it will be the only ancestor that has left descendants into the present. So one of the things we talked about yesterday in the conversation was various metaphors that have existed for talking about life. We think of the nature, red and tooth and claw, metaphors of competition, struggle. And there was some suggestion that we need, given the science, given pro progress in what we know about biology and so on, that we need new metaphors. So could either of you talk a bit about where you see that going? Yeah. Um, Andrew, you may know better some of the history of biology than I do because I'm more recent and more of an outsider to it than you are. It seems to me that I see a lot of echoes of Malthusian Victorian England in the language structure of modern evolutionary biology. Some of it is well suited to what we know about heredity and filtering and survival of organisms, but some of it seems to be somewhat artificially imposed. And the language is certainly not as rich as what we know about the world. So, in order to compete, you first have to have the capacity to do more than you. In order to compete, two things have to be similar enough that they one can displace the other in the same environment, which is a non-trivial thing. And the degree of similarity is itself subject to past history. But in order to vary and compete so that one thing can outcompete another or be more fit, the variations first have to be possible. And we know a lot about how the conditions from the past do or do not open possibilities for variation. A naive language of competition doesn't do justice to how much we know about the mechanisms that generate variation. Even though it is there in the biology, it doesn't survive in the shorthand by which biology is communicated mm. more broadly. Yes, yeah, so I think we know that Malthus's treatise on population and that sense of scarcity was pretty important for Darwin's thinking. And that question of nature being red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson put it, is certainly featured in theological thought about evolution very prominently in the last, well, hundred years. Uh, I think sometimes slightly naively so, as if it wasn't until Darwin came along that theologians had had to ponder suffering, which uh, is clearly not the case. I mean, perhaps the point is that Darwin makes it constitutive in a way that it didn't seem to be before, but it's not the first time that theologians or philosophers had had to think about suffering. 
And I think that this work on the uh, importance of cooperation doesn't erase that story, but it says there are at least two aspects to evolution. There's certainly a story of competition, but there's also an absolutely constitutive role for cooperation. And in fact, even as I understand it, in speciation, which is so important in in the history of uh, how evolution works, it seems to be that shifting patterns of cooperation are important for the distinction, uh, distinction of one species from another, partly because of embryology and, um, and the way in which the immune system does or doesn't recognise that which is uh, like to it, uh, but also because uh, you can get, when you get a new relationship between two species, it can open up new territories. I mean, a bug can feed on an, a new sort of clover that it couldn't before, and that starts to segregate populations and you get, um, you get uh, differentiation of, of species. So and that, that's one pretty important way in which you can't now tell the story of evolution faithfully without putting a pretty important stress on cooperation. Well, there is a th- there's a mistake that we are encouraged to make in common language, but that I don't think we should make and we don't have to make in technical language. When we use competition and cooperation as alternatives, that to me is not the same as when we use the term competition as a primitive in, in Darwinian descriptions of the world. Competition as opposed to cooperation, those are high-level strategic concepts that really come out of game-theoretic thinking, and they presuppose the notions of agency and goal and all sorts of other stuff like that. Before using those for very low-level systems, you first have to justify that they're even appropriate. So it's here we, we can make a mistake by conflating by saying that Darwin's competition or Gauss's competitive exclusion is the same as strategic competition, and then we can see that there is seems to be coordination in the world that looks like it should be strategic cooperation, and how did Darwin leave that out? I think that's setting up a straw man by bad use of terms, because the Darwinian competition is much simpler. It's just a statement that things are in some respects substitutable for each other and everything falls apart and they fall apart at different rates. And there's no question of, co- of cooperation or even necessarily coordination in that. It's out of that basic kinetics that we then look for these higher level abstractions, any form of coordination. And then much later, the notion of cooperation per se, which connotes having choices but somehow being refrained, restrained against using so that's just a matter of slowing down and speaking in complete sentences. Mm. I've read also the uh, accusation that put, speaking only about competition is to understand life only in terms of death. In fact, I mean, it's one and and propagation. So we uh, put we almost forget everything else that happens in the process of being alive of a creature and say it's yes. just about um, having as many uh, offspring as possible yeah. and dying. And, and that's to ignore quite a lot of what might be of interest to biology. I think that's right, yeah. Yes. And back to Josh's question about metaphors we live by and sometimes don't live very well by them. The other metaphor is no such thing as a free lunch. And that's less about the proper use of the Darwinian frame and a little bit closer to the biochemical idea. 
it certainly is tied to the notion of conditions of scarcity and a struggle for existence. But the pre-1970s picture of life had painted too many things as a struggle. And so this is where we talk about the canonical language of biology, harnessing free energy, um, capturing energy from the environment. And the big reorienting that occurred after 1970s with the discovery of chemotrophic biospheres is what our colleague Everett Schock calls the free lunch you're paid to eat. The idea that you make complex biomass as the way of allowing trapped energy to dissipate to heat rather than having to separately hold trapped energy apart. Now, even to only say that is to say too little because it's like an amusement park roller coaster. There still are hills you have to get over and there are energy systems that organisms use to do that. And modern organisms live under conditions of such extremely small chemical driving force that no spontaneous process could get close to it. And so they have enormously refined energy systems that enable them to do that. But there you have to separate the coarse distinctions in the world between major qualitative domains going in the downhill direction versus fighting the downhill direction, or how, how complicated a world you have to couple. In the chemotrophic world, you're chemically on average downhill. In the phototrophic world, you're chemically on average uphill. So now you have to couple the world of light to the world of chemistry in order to be downhill in the aggregate. But then you depend on all the complexity of making that coupling system and maintaining it. And that's what makes the phototrophic life a later and more sophisticated and harder to explain level. It's, it's probably worth um, defining those, yes. those two terms. So yes. Phototrophic is yes. a life which depends upon light for its energy source. Yes, exactly. And, and chemotrophic, life which eats chemicals. So trophic coming from to eat. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and one of the important things here is the realisation in the last few decades that the earliest life on Earth was much closer to that chemical eating. As far form. as we know, chemotrophy is the only the only thing that reconstructs. We don't know how far back phototrophy goes. We know that modern oxygenic photosynthesis doesn't go back more than half the age of the Earth or a little bit further. Earlier photosynthesis, that's still an open question. It could go back much further, but it's hard to find very strong evidence that it does. Or just, just how far back. This is pretty important when we think about those objections to the existence of life on Earth or non-miraculous uh, origin for life on Earth that say, well, it just stands against the second law of thermodynamics and um, you don't get complicated things. But actually what this is saying is uh, there are these energy gradients especially chemical ones, um, which are eminently productive of, of life and complex systems. This yeah. isn't, a, this isn't yeah. to go against that, but it's exactly what you would expect. Yeah. Yeah, the whole trope of going against thermodynamics was never really an issue. Boltzmann had it correct in 1879, and there was no reason for that mistake to ever be made again. Every 30 or 40 years, another scientist comes up and gets famous for repeating in some way what Boltzmann had correctly said in a way that gets people's attention again. But I think the right way to say it is something like this. It wasn't, uh, one more editorial comment, it wasn't necessary to make the mistake in Boltzmann's time, and it's unforgivable to make it today when we live in a world of refrigerators and engines. Because 
in our world of refrigerators, it doesn't bother us for a moment that we can take entropy out of the food to chill it and pump that heat into the room. And we know that somewhere far away there's a power plant that's taking free energy out of some fuel and dumping it into heat in our global environment. So obviously you can pull entropy out of a local configuration within a bigger system. There was never a problem with the second law. At the same time, while knowing that may enable you to build better refrigerators or do the material science to build better power plants, it doesn't answer a completely different question, which is, why are refrigerators in the world? If a refrigerator breaks, why does someone from the biosphere always come and fix it? How long will refrigerators remain in the world? By what paths could refrigerators have emerged in the world? Is there any other path as probable as having emerged all of humanity and technology to build them? And when we ask about the origin of life, that's the question we're asking. How did complex machinery come into being, even if it used relatively straightforward quasi-equilibrium thermodynamics at some points? Mm. And that's where science actually has more work to do. And that seems to me where the theologian should put his or her emphasis, not in saying that there needs to be some sort of um, miraculous intervention for life to exist, but rather to be filled with wonder at the fact that the laws of mathematics and, 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 and physics uh, contain within themselves this production of complexity and, and all that we see in the living world. That brings us back to astrobiology. If I look at a phase diagram for the molecular or the, the atomic constituents of some, mineral, of some mineral, I can get a very large number of mineral phases and a particular one only appears at a certain combination of pressure and temperature. It's a really important and really interesting science question which planetary conditions do ever ramify to something complex and hierarchical. If you start as an oxidizing planet like Venus or Mars, do you go to complexity? If you start as a neutral planet, like we think the Earth was, what are the options? If you are locally reducing, what are the options? It's amazing we don't know more about the answer to that question, and it's just a testimony to how hard it is to do systems chemistry and how very early are we are in the study of that question. And as I understand it, whereas maybe it's been popular in the last couple of decades to think about the origins of life in terms of the processing of, of information and putting the emphasis on DNA or more often RNA, right. you're saying let's start off by thinking about metabolism and the way in which small carbon-based molecules uh, change one into another. I certainly am saying that, but I want to be careful not to put myself into a tribe because I am not the first person to have said that metabolism was important early and maybe before the rise of genomes and the control apparatus. That point of view has been criticized and one of the unhappy things in biology right now is that the proponents of early metabolism don't always accept and embrace the criticisms as thoroughly as they should for all the things that the metabolists think are true but don't have the ability to back up. So if one has smaller aspirations, one can say things that are more likely to be true. The real question is a question about continuity. 
were patterns in geochemistry important as a framework for early patterns in metabolism? And did then they create a scaffold within which other systems like memory systems came into existence? If so, then by studying biochemistry today, we have a hope of learning something relevant about the chemistry that led to the first life on Earth. If not, then you have the position that, as everyone would agree, there was interesting organic chemistry on the early Earth. The contention is, if there was a discontinuity instead of a continuity, studying biochemistry turns out not to have important clues about what the early chemistry was. And then you can also ask, was the early chemistry particular, or could it have been arbitrary? And the important innovation was later. And I think that's where the nub of the disagreement or the, the difference in premises comes. And is part of what's at stake here the basic question about the probability that life would come to exist in a certain context, say on Earth? That certainly is one of the outcomes, right. yeah. But I think, even though it's a great way into the topic because it forces you to ask a crisp question, I don't think it's the most interesting thing we learn. Because you can always say, what do you need beyond a description of mechanism to say you really understand the why of something? or the conceptual essence of something. You need a complete context. You need to know which alternatives are possible and which are not possible and why. Mm -hmm. And just retracing history can never do that. Just like for Francis Bacon, the mere elaboration of facts, which he had hoped would lead to understanding, can't lead to understanding. There are always commitments that go in with the facts. And so if you were to say, what do we want from a theory of biology or a theory of the living state? It's all of the rest of this that's beyond just reconstructing history and even understanding the functionality of mechanism. It's a whole picture of alternatives. Right. And this is the, po the importance of something like what Frank's doing, Frank Rosenzweig, with experimental evolution so that you can trace the pathways that weren't taken but could have been taken. Yes. Nature is always more imaginative than we are. And so we're lucky that we get anything right, but to go back to experiment is always right. part of the right thing to do. And one of the things that's so startling in the, astro in the work of astronomers in the, in the past um, few decades has been this sense of there being a lot more different sort of planets than we yes. perhaps, perhaps thought. Yes. And this is important because uh, the, the emphasis used to be on maybe shallow seas and bathed in sunlight and the, the primordial soup and you'd say well a, a planet that might look like that would be most likely to to harbour life whereas it may be that it's all about geothermal vents that that's that that would be more important for getting things going so there is a news flash on that i think the astrobiology community would say now that the mainstream view is that serpentinization the alteration of silicate rocks that have reduced iron in them with water is probably the most common rock-water interaction process in the universe. So even though planets can be built in a lot of different ways, people think that in any of the planets where you have a significant rocky material and a significant body of accumulated water, and it's, there's enough heat either from the star or from radioactivity to keep it liquid, these alteration chemistries are probably the dominant chemistry. So at least in that regard, what's happening on Earth is not unusual, it's generic. And one of the ways to illustrate how important that is, if I understand it, um, is that some of the 
detail at, at the atomic structure that we see in these water-rock interactions look very like the metal sites in the yeah. most important enzymes that yes. keep, keep life going at the present. Yeah, this is a beautiful thing. The reason I personally think it's a mistake to think that life is an abstract play that's carried out on chemistry as an arbitrary stage is that you have so much of a scaffolding effect from the periodic table that runs all the way through life to all levels. Covalent bond organic chemistry is really hard to do. And in, in water, most of it's inaccessible under most conditions. The thing that suddenly opens up doors to regions in the space of organic covalent bond chemistry is electron transfer. And metal centers make that available in ways that nothing else does in water. And the gateway character of metals may have been the only major thing for most geochemical processes, and it still is the dominant electron transfer mechanism in biochemistry. You can now find exceptions, but all of the ones that I can think of reflect relatively sophisticated evolution, whereas metals are given to you off the shelf. So just as a final question, I'd like to... Um ask you, Eric, if there are any questions that came to mind when you were speaking to the, to the research fellows here this week. Another way to put it is sort of, you know, what do you take away from this conversation from the science side? It's tricky because I don't, I can't speak for other people's ideas because it's not my place. I think in the conversations between any science and the wider circle of humanities, you have to ask why people are in the conversation. Do both parties in the conversation come to it recognizing some inadequacy and hoping to grow and hoping that the other will help them grow? And what's the evidence of that? Are they willing to change what they do? Are they willing to give anything up? Are they willing to try something new that will only come to them after they've grown into what they couldn't do before the interaction? I would like to see the two communities challenge each other and, and ask to get something non-zero back, right? Because what we don't want above all is a disingenuous conversation where people claim to be interested in a dialogue but actually just want something else. So there's, there's a, you know, Sock's notion of good faith I think is central in all of this. Unless a conversation is carried out in good faith by all parties, don't just stay out of it, because that's not, there's no future in that. But then the question is, where are there good ideas? If there aren't good ideas, maybe we should minimize the amount that we claim to jointly write, because it undermines our reputation. And like Quakers at a meeting, we're willing to sit quietly for an hour in case anything needs to be done, and if there's nothing to do, then we go home and we try again next week. Not all of phenomenology, but certainly some of phenomenology proposes that it has a systematics that can be used to recognize the difference between composite experiences and simple experiences. And if you think that science always goes through the world with its back toward the truth and only sees the truth long after the fact, after the evidence has forced us into it, you could always say, if you think you have a window into the nature of perception. Can it help us avoid mistakes? Can it help us 
keep from being stuck so long on things that we could see better? I'm open to that question. I'd like to hear what people think about it. John has a good point that Yes, just as it's foolish to separate the biosphere as a thing that's entirely an innovation unconnected to the rest of the physical chemical world, it seems kind of perverse to separate science as a thing that's unconnected to the larger society and that you sort of talk to through a telephone line, right? Science is part of the human enterprise and it is as embedded as anything can be, for better or worse. But that means that there, there are needs to understand and there are elements of responsibility. And I think responsibility is a thing that the humanities side and the philosophical side should be able to pick up. Um, scientists are not bad in this way. They get a lot of criticism, but the ones that I know don't deserve it. They try to be responsible people. But you can only be good at so many things. And if there's a quality conversation to be had about what constitutes responsibility and how we choose what we jointly do, then the scientists should be eager to learn and to benefit from that. I can't think of a better place to uh, close than that. And uh, just thanks to both of you for, for being on the podcast and for your time this week. I think it was very fruitful, and I think we can hopefully continue this conversation over the next several months. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.